you've seen Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens, yes? I have. I saw that on opening day in 2015. With The Force Awakens, I, and again, I'm kind of a snob in a lot of ways with like writing, character development, uh, pop culture, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I get that The Force Awakens was like, you know, a soft reboot of everything, but. I looked at Han Solo, and I'm like, wait a minute. You were a smuggler who married a princess and then helped defeat the Empire. And now, 40 years later, you're back at step one. Like, like what are we doing? Like, <laughs> I, I, you know, I've, I've thought well, about that, too, and I actually think I have an answer to that. I'll have, I, well, maybe not a rebuttal quite, but it's definitely an answer. Because it's got? kind of... It, you raise a good point. You know, why would, after all the stuff that he's done, why is he still, like, unimportant in the galaxy? You know, because that's, that's basically yeah. what it comes down to. It's like, it's, it's the it's the Din Djarin syndrome, basically, to to you to coin a term that from, from the Mandalorian. Because, you know, you look at the man, you watch the Mandalorian and Din Djarin, he doesn't know who any of these people are. He doesn't know who Ahsoka Tano is. He doesn't know who Luke Skywalker is. He doesn't know who um, Bo-Katan Kurz is. He doesn't know who any of these people are. Even though they've been involved in all these friggin' swashbuckling adventures that have that have decided the fate of the whole galaxy, and he's like, "Who are you again? I'm sorry." And it's like, "How does he not know?" But, it, but of course, on the for, from a from a Doyleist perspective, you know, the, the the external like writing perspective, that's so that he can play the role of the audience, and we can and they can, we can learn about what's happening in this world through him. But right. from a Watsonian perspective, it's because it's a big friggin' galaxy. You've got millions of star systems with people living on them. It's a wonder that anybody knows anybody, because um, you know you they 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 sort of they actually sort of hang a lantern on this. I think in season two of The Mandalorian, with the one with the, like the first episode with Timothy Oliphant, you see the you see like the news feed of oh the Empire fell because Luke Skywalker killed the Emperor and Darth Vader, and it's like eh, okay whatever. So what? Who cares? People's stories should progress linearly linearly in one direction mm-hmm. right like you as a person you were a baby and then you went to school and now you're interning at nasa and you're trying to find like this great awesome path it's going in one direction han solo smuggling at age 77 is like you going back to third grade as you turn 30 like it feels like such a step back and I get their I get through nostalgia lenses they're kind of putting all the toys back in the same place everyone remembers but there's a point to all this and it has to deal with our episode we're covering tonight which is season one episode one of Stargate SG-1 called Children of the Gods and my point to all this was was that uh Children of the Gods does what The Force Awakens doesn't do, right? It tells almost the same story as the movie. It introduces uh, Jack O'Neill, right, at his house, and it introduces Jack O'Neill with an airman coming up, knocking on the door paralleling the movie quite a bit because in the movie he knocks on the door and Jack O'Neill is just just a looking longingly at that pistol wonder if he's yep. going to eat the, the business end of it 
But in this one, this is after the adventure in the movie. And so Jack O'Neill is up on the roof, gazing at the stars, wondering which direction the battle fleet's going to come from, <laughs> right? Like, still kind of a dark place, but has purpose now, you know? Yep. Many of the beats of Children of the Gods are so similar because when he gets called back into the Stargate program, much like he did in the movie, they're about to just shoot a nuke through the wormhole and say, fuck it. In the movie, Jack O'Neill is like, hey, why don't you let me go hit the, the button and kill myself and everyone around me on the other side? But in this one, Jack O'Neill is like, hey, man, maybe we don't murder people because there's people over there. Yeah. You know, and well, I think one of the greatest things about Jack's arc, at least in the er, between the movie and maybe the, like the first season, especially, is that it's very much embodies something that funnily enough, I've seen also in some like posts and like actually like bits of stand up as a matter of fact over the last couple of days where it's like you know basically the gist of, it is that, of this trope is that you know it's easy to say you'll die for someone or something it's hard to live for someone or something yeah. it's like it's like the it's like the, the joke the, the one of the jokes one of the guys who's, who's the comedians i was watching a bit of stand up on instagram of all places and this guy was talking about how he's saying like you know, he tells me it's it's hard to date because he tells tell a girl you know, i'd die for you but I don't know if I want to marry you because that <laughs> might be like dying slowly. <laughs> well, dying takes it's it's. But, but yeah, because but because that, that's the thing is it touches on the fact that you know what is it? Um, it was actually like a famous quote from someone. It's like like a, like an actual like 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 famous war leader or something. I want to say, but I can't I can't remember the the context. But it was basically along those lines that you know, lots of people are willing to die for a cause, but they're not willing to live for one. Um, so, you know, and, and the difference being that, you know, in, 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 the, in, the, in the context of Stargate, the movie, Jack O'Neill, as you said, is willing to kill himself to complete this mission. But it's not it's not until he gets a reason to live for the mission, which is when he realizes, oh, there's a threat out there that I might have to be around for in the future. And there's like people who might still rely on me and people who still who still care about me. And I don't need to just destroy myself in this you know, hopeless, forlorn, self-destructive, you know, man pain that comes <laughs> from having my son die. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you're right. It, it's because living for something takes like actual work. Yeah. Right? And you're dying, you know, heroically takes work. Sure. I've never done it, so I can't really speak to it. But, I mean, it's not as it's not as much work if it may be because yeah, or maybe like, it's, it's it's a different kind of work because you're basically you you dying heroically for a cause or to or to save some life or multiple lives or what have you your problems are over when the mission's over you know exactly you're you're dead but when you have to live for something it's kind of goes like that it's like that joke kind of says in a flippant way you know it can be like dying slowly living for something you might have you might have decades to try and build something and cultivate it and safeguard it and, and nurture it. And it might take every ounce of effort and strength you have in your body and it might break you. And some, a lot of people aren't ready for that. But most people I would say are probably not really ready to take on that kind of responsibility. I mean, that's, that's the difference between, you know, uh, dating a pretty girl for a weekend and getting married. Yeah. You know, basically. Like, yeah. Getting, you know, dating a pretty girl for a weekend is fun for like a weekend. You know, it's a real shallow experience. 
you know, you'll probably forget her name. But like, when you're married, you know, it's you, you, you see all of the parts of the person that they don't show anyone else, like the emotional stuff. Who am I really? And then that person accepts you for all your weird shit and you accept them for all their weird shit. And then you just say, hey, we're sticking this out together. We're gonna build a life together no matter what. And you know, anybody who's listening has been married will know sometimes that no matter what takes a lot of work. Because mm-hmm. you gotta be like, hey, there's nothing more important than the no matter what. That's the most important thing. And much to your point, living for something, living for someone uh, is all the world, right? And after they stop, after Zach O'Neill stops the nuke from going over, uh, they send a team out to Abydos. But then uh, they get over there and Daniel Jackson is over there with his wife, who is way out of his league. They're like, I just want to be like, good for you, bud. Like, well done. And yes, technically she was gift, and that's a little bit human trafficking. But also, you know, it was war, it's aliens, it's complicated. I get it, right? It, it's, it it's, it's, of, a, it's a complex cultural thing. It's a complex cultural thing. It all works out for the end. Well, not for her, but yeah. for everyone else. Um, but for different reasons, for different reasons, it's not. It doesn't, work, it doesn't work out for her, not because of her being married to Daniel Jackson, because the Gould are universal dickheads. Yeah, and when and Apophis is an asshole who refuses Apophis to die. Get to that. Is the king of the night, where Ra was like the king of the day in Egyptian mythology, and as the two-hour pilot unfolds, you see more and more like. Yeah, there's a line I like where Dana Jackson says they're living it out like there's yeah, this whole straight out of the book of the dead they're living it out yeah and Scar makes an appearance now I think that's the same kid from the yep. movie but there's yeah. only two there's only two actors who are the same between the movie and the TV show and it's Scara and Scara's dad who's also you know Share's dad yeah. Uh, what's the kid? I can't remember the kid's name, but the guy's name is Eric Avari, and he's he's been on he's he's played bit roles in a bunch of different things. He was in the Mummy. He was in he was in the very beginning of Independence Day as the like SETI uh, like station chief who gets woken up to hear the message from the from the saucers coming in. It's his head on the ceiling when he stands up too quick. <laughs> See, that's that's the kind of career I'd want, where you're like you're making stuff, you're a part of something big. You know, but like, I don't know. <laughs> There's all that pressure being the spotlight guy. Mm-hmm. What with this episode? What's the thing that stands out with for, with you the most? You think? Looking at it again, it it strikes me how well constructed this is as a pilot episode. Oh, it's tight as a drum. Because it hits so many. You're you're right. It hits so many good beats, and it hits them when it needs to, how it needs to. And it sells itself as a, as a as a pilot, you know. Arguably, the follow-up episode, which again technically it's the third episode, if depending on what service you're looking at, because I've seen the first the first the, the first two-parter episode split up into two. I've seen it as one. It doesn't really matter. The next one, the one with uh, the one uh, the enemy within, I think it's called the one with the one with the Gould, where we deal with the consequences of the Gould getting inside. Kowalski. Yeah. Those three episodes technically can go together as like a three-part pilot almost because by the end of the third one, which I just watched 
uh, last night with my dad because we wanted something to watch. Um, you have the you have you have the foursome together. You have Teal'c on SG One. They go through the Stargate for the first time. But definitely, Children of the Gods is the original pilot made for Showtime. I want to say it hits so many good beats. It's tight. It's well written. It's well acted. Um, you know, there's there's parts that could be better, but that's the case with any. You, you, you take any sci-fi show, especially early in its lifespan, there's going to be growing pains. You know, Star Trek Next Generation is often considered one of the greatest Star Treks. And you look at its first season, there's lots of rough stuff. There's a lot of rough stuff in that first season. Speaking, speaking of that, I'm... And we'll get a, a brief tangent. I'm kind of constructing in my head an article about why I don't like John Luke Picard yeah. as, a, as a military officer. <laughs> I, God damn. Like, I hear him say, he does stuff, and he, I hear him say stuff, and I'm like, why are you, like, you should be, like, I don't know, in charge of the juice bar at the Lunar Dock or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I think I think that actually, ba- ba- if based on the conversation we had, which you can you can detail here, obviously, if you want, if for the sake of the readers, but based on the conversation we had about how um, John Luke Picard kind of falls short as a great captain because he's not willing to make the, to, to to take the steps that sometimes need to be taken if you're going to be a great leader. And I think that goes back to what we talked about in terms of, you know, the difference between dying for a cause and living for a cause. John Luke Picard, like the example you used was he's, he wasn't willing to live with the guilt. I don't know, whatever. He wasn't willing to live with the feeling that it would have given him to wipe out the board. Because for some right. reason, he he was he was such a believe he's such a believer in the admittedly, you know, you know, noble, but maybe perhaps misguided, but he's such a believer in the goals of Starfleet and the Prime Directive and all those sorts of things that he's not willing to sacrifice an entire species, even if that species is committing genocide against billions of other species, possibly. Um, it's basically a bit, which in, in, a, in a sense, it boils down to the one of the most classic of Star Wars lessons, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. You know, do are we willing to take them? Are we willing to count that to count off the Borg and wipe them out to safeguard the rest of the galaxy? And John Luke Picard said, "No, I'm not willing to do that because, as bad as they may be, they're still alive." And I think that touches on a fat on kind of something we talked about. You know, it's or it's he's not willing to live with that. You know, he could die fighting the Borg, as we're definitely as we can definitely see in First Contact, where. You know, he'd, he'd be willing to sacrifice himself in the fight against the Borg, but for some reason, he's not willing to see them be destroyed, even if he has the means within his grasp to do it, because he's not willing to live with that. Again, I don't know if guilt or shame or what, whatever emotion you want to use, whatever emotional term you want to use is the, is the correct one. But he would he would rather he would rather live with the horror of knowing they exist than live with the guilt of knowing that he wiped them out and committed genocide. For some reason, I don't know. I'd feel more guilty if people died after a thing happened that I could have stopped. Yeah, you know. And you that's know, good, because that's, that's exactly right. You know, it's it's like uh, you know, it's it's not the same. So I, I can almost truly say I'm going to stop here right there. But it's like it's like a classic. It's like the classic time travel ethics. 
question. You know, if you had time, if you had a time machine, would you go back in time and kill baby Hitler? It's the same. You know? I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. Same thought crossing my. You know who wouldn't hesitate? Pull that trigger on the Borg. Jack O'Neill. <laughs> exactly. Because oh, that's like, Jack O'Neill friggin' says as much. In yeah. in the episode, you remember in I think it was like what season six? It was just season six because that's the one where Daniel is, you know, which we'll get to, I'm sure. Um, you know, Daniel he Daniel says as much. He's like, you know, if you had because what is it? Daniel, it's, it's the episode where Ball has captured Jack because yeah. Jack had the toker in him, and Jack was trying to bust the toker the toker's friend out of prison or something, or, or bust the toker out of Ball's like facility and ball captures him and he's torturing him he's torturing torturing him to death over and over again using the sarcophagus to resurrect him and daniel comes to him like an astral form or whatever and says as an as an ascended being and says hey i can get you out of this but you have to consent to be ascended and to lose your touch with the low with the lower plane and jack says no i can't do it because i would be tempted i you know i would not only be tempted to i would want to use my power to right wrongs down here on the ground and there's like there's a very good exchange it's actually some very fine acting between michael shanks and richard dean anderson where michael shanks is like you're a better man than that jack and jack actually has an outburst and says that's where you're wrong because he knows what kind of person he is he knows what he has done he knows that for the 10 to 20 years before he joined the stargate program he was in the friggin' covert service of like the of, of like JSOC or whatever, and was killing people for the United States government. He doesn't yeah, have dude, compunctions against. Yeah, he was stacking bodies. He does not have compunctions against doing the necessary evils, if you even want to call it that, for the sake of the greater good or what he what he considers to be the greater good. And he makes that clear several other times. You know, he's yeah. he. That's one of the things that makes him such a good lead character for the show is that he has a very unwavering moral compass and he's not willing, he's not afraid to tell someone to stick it if they get in the way of that moral compass. <laughs> the thing I liked about uh, Children of the Gods was where, like you were saying, how it's tied as a drum, how it all just works. It, like none of it's wasted, right? Mm -hmm. And they've, and so Daniel Jackson's wife, Shari, I think I'd say to say her name. Shari, yep. Yeah, there you go. And she's captured by a ghoul and she gets a worm put in her belly. And so she gets taken over by an alien. And so that's Daniel Jackson's motivation to run out into the universe. And then Skara, who is Daniel Jackson's brother-in-law uh, and kind of the surrogate son for Jack O'Neill gets captured as well. And then both of them are, you know, captured by the enemy. And so then you get this cool shot at the end of Children of the Gods where they're both like, oh, he's like, my wife's gone. And then Jack O'Neill's like, yeah, so is my surrogate son. And then Dan and Jack's like, what are we going to do? And then Jack O'Neill says, we're going to get him. And I like how it, out of everything else, it also sets those two guys up with almost identical character motivations but you get to see the differences in their character but given how they uh act in service of those motivations like you and me two rapidly different guys if we both had wives and they both got captured we'd probably handle it differently because we're two different guys right same character motivation uh two different characters bouncing against it um, 
I like Kowalski. Kowalski being Jack O'Neill's best friend, one of the guys that was from the movie and is the leader of SG2. And that episode ends with a worm that goes in his ear and then he's the enemy within, right? Mm -hmm. Which I think is the episode or the, the title of uh episode two or three however you count it yep yep um was there anything with children of the gods that if you had to nitpick you know if i had a nitpick i would probably want i would probably you know i don't know because i'd have to i'd have to think on that because because it does so much right that the stuff that little things like no, because obviously, well, even if we wanted to nitpick like its production value, for example, it has pretty good production value for what it is. It's a, it's a late '90s, two, it's a late '90s sci-fi show, originally from Showtime, eventually moved to Sci-Fi Channel. It actually has pretty good production value, even for the first season, because it actually was you know, they spent some money to try and sell a series by making this good pilot episode. So, you know, yeah. whereas a lot of those shows from back then. Um, and, and if anything, it kind of they can kind of get away with cutting corners because it's set most it's set mostly on Earth or on other planets, you know. You know, you look at you look at shows like Babylon Five, um, and I'm not gonna I'm not I'm not bad mouthing Babylon Five or any of those because they've you know they've got their own place in the annals of sci-fi history. But you look at like the early seasons, especially, you can tell that the budget was maybe not there yet, or the technology was maybe not there yet, because and, and it's easy to tell because at least half like half the show takes place or or like even just a b-roll or whatever takes place in space whether it's around the space station itself or with the ships flying to and from the space station or whatever and that sort of that sort of effects work was maybe not the best in the mid 90s when the show started airing and the technology wasn't really there so with babylon 5 uh it's uh like in it, it, it began in '93, right? Yeah, and it was actually the first live-action TV show to incorporate that level of computer-generated mm-hmm. graphics on a weekly basis, and it had like half the budget of DS9. Yeah, and and yeah, now it looks like a PlayStation 2 cutscene, you know, like the the, the graphics and and I know the stuff Which... you're sending me that you're doing in Blender looks better than Babylon 5 back then, but, you know, um, I digress, you're saying. No, it's, you know, you're, you're right, because that's the thing is, but it's, 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 we have to remember that when it came out, it was cutting edge. Yeah. Because you, you mentioned, oh, it looks like PlayStation 2 cutscenes. Well, you know, we like to joke about how, oh, well, we all have nostalgia goggles about these old video games, but when we were, when, you know, when, when, when Halo, you know, I, I could probably use Halo as an example, because I'm a Halo head. When the original Halo came out in late 2001, it was cutting edge. You know, people look back on it now and there's lots of talk about it. Oh, well, so many of the levels are just like procedural sort of, you know, labyrinthine, labyrinthine, like, you know, repeating mazes. And it's not very complex. But when it came out, it was cutting edge. And the sure. cutscene, the cutscenes were beautiful to people. You know, we may look back on it now, twenty almost almost twenty two years later, or going on twenty two years later, and think, oh, well, that's so low tech, it looks so bad. But when it came out, that's the best thing people knew. So that's they thought it looked cool. Speaking of speaking of low tech, 
at the climactic battle of Children of the Gods, mm-hmm. uh, they so, and this is only because I've watched a lot of behind the scenes documentaries on model work and stuff. So you've got all you know SG ones in the woodline, and then there's all these refugees they're trying to get to the Stargate, and then the Jaffa battleships are flying in, but then it just cuts to a view right below the battleships, and you see just nothing but like white lines behind it. And I'm like, oh, this is the model work part. <laughs> and, and then the the, the the battleship shoots at them. And then I'm like, oh, this is this is kind of like Power Rangers back in the day, right? Yeah. And then, you know, it's 1997. You know, it's it's a TV show. It's fine. It, it I I I am thoroughly enjoying this SG One rewatch. Honestly, more than I thought I would. Not that I didn't think I would, but I forgot just how fucking good this good this show is. Yeah, it is. I haven't watched The Enemy Within yet, but what would you like to say about it? Oh, man. Again, it's amazing how good this show gets it right out of the gate. Because, you know, honestly, I'll I'll say this. Enemy Within isn't, like, my favorite episode or one of my favorite episodes. That's not a slight against it. Because there's some very damn good programming, just like television programming, that is just in this first this first season of Stargate. Like yeah. I said, it's not it's it's kind of a trope that especially '90s shows, sci-fi shows, but really any sci-fi shows that are trying to find their footing with a new premise or newer premise, they kind of have they kind of struggle sometimes in the first season. And I don't think Stargate SG-1 struggles all that much in the first season. It kind of finds its footing early on and kind of hits the ground running. Right you know it's i i'm watching this because i know where the story's going right the sg program almost becomes like the fifth branch of the military in a lot of ways like it becomes like the space force almost and they have like there's like the alpha side and then there's like different ships 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 of the fleet and different alliances and things and it gets so complicated and, and it's, it's kind of like that it's kind of like that reference i made to you when we were when we were going to the con the other day about how um you know it's like it's like the joke about playing a role-playing game where you know you do your first session and the sort of mission the sort of missions that your characters are given is hey rescue that kitten out of that tree but then by the time you get to the 40th or 50th session the mission is kill god that's kind of how it feels with stargate you know because they start off so so simply in the first season but you're right you know by the by the time we get to the sixth or seventh season and we've got like the prometheus built and they're building the, the big B, that could see bc304s or whatever they are you know things like the odyssey and the and the um other ones whatever they're called um by the time atlantis is starting to come is, is like coming by the time atlantis comes about in season at the time of season eight um it it really does it doesn't just do narrative well it does narrative progression and ramp up well yeah because it, it does a good job of raising the stakes not every show does that well because there's there's even a famous line there's even a famous trope that captures the idea which is jumping the shark you know the, the idea that the only way you can raise the stakes is to raise them to a place where there's just nonsense and stargate i don't think really ever does that we could probably argue especially if we when we get to this point about the way about the way the ori arc was handled because it only partially because it only had two seasons to really ever do anything but you know uh, but even then 
it doesn't feel out of place because everything that came before leads to it and helps inform how it develops. You know, I didn't watch, I don't think I've seen season 10. Yeah, have you seen season nine? Parts of it. I remember okay. Ben Bowder coming on. Yeah. Um, there's, so, and since we're talking about that sort of thing, so there's a line in, in the um, Children of the Gods pilot when they introduce Samantha Carter. And it's funny because at first she comes in and she's just like this hot blonde who's super smart but fought in the Gulf War, right? She's, she's like, you know, uh, uh, every manic pixie dream officer you've ever had, you know? And she, uh, but all the other guys are like, but sir, she's a girl with girl parts. What's happening? And they're asking her like, what kind of doll she played with and whatever. And O'Neill doesn't really want her there. But then I like this because she says to him, sir, it doesn't matter if my reproductive organs are on the inside or on the outside. It's if I can do my job or something like that. And then he says, listen, I don't mind women. I like women. I hate scientists. <laughs> You're a nerd. <laughs> And then she goes, oh, I fought for a hundred hours in the Gulf War. And then he goes, I'm listening. And he sits down and there's just this instant chemistry there between those two, which is just, you can cut it with a knife. And which again, let's put a pin in that because that get the, definitely comes back in later seasons as you're aware. Uh, speaking of which, in episode, like the season finale of season eight, when there's, long story short, there's a time travel thing. Mm -hmm. Time resets, and then Amanda Tapping, Samantha Carter, is in the SG's program, the Stargate Command, and then she was gonna, she's running this through her head, and she goes, because my reproductive organs are on the inside, not the outside. It doesn't matter. Gosh, that's a stupid line. Why would anyone say that line, right? It's so... And every time I see it in the pilot, I think back to where they make fun of it eight years later. Because I'm like, yeah, it's kind of heavy-handed a little bit. But see, that's one of the greatest things about Stargate is they're not they're not afraid to make fun of themselves yeah. when they do something that they don't like or they realize the fans didn't like. You remember? You remember how the Zatnikatels, the Zatguns, the third shot disintegrates? Yeah. They then that sort of that, that functionality sort of just faded away and was never mentioned again. And then it's not till like season six or something where Martin Lloyd, the guy who I think I think it's Martin Lloyd, maybe something, maybe maybe that the alien guy who's like living on Earth and he helps come up with wormhole extreme while he's living undercover. And they use that as a cover pro they use that as a cover for the Stargate program. But anyway, when Jack O'Neill is on the set where they're making this, you know, Stargate SG one show within a show. Um, he, they're trying to figure out how we're going to get rid of these dead alien bodies. They're making it hard for the actors to walk around the set. And Martin says, "Well, if that thing can like kill with what stun with one shot and kill with two shots, maybe the third shot disintegrates." And you understand as a, as a viewer that he's calling upon knowledge that he actually has suppressed, but he knows about the Zatnikatels from his life as living as an alien. But the director walks up to him and says, "I'm going to forget you said that because that may be the stupidest thing I've ever heard anyone say." <laughs> That's funny. 
Oh man. Um, any other thoughts on Children of the Gods, sir? Oh, I mean, honestly, such a great introduction to Teal too, because you see, you can see his his conflict, you can see his like character, and you really get a good sense of who he is right from the get right from the word go. And he's honestly, I think he's he's definitely a fan favorite, but he's probably my favorite character. You know, I had a crush on Samantha Carter as a kid. But you want to be buddies with Teal. You like want to be. You want to. You want to go to the movies with Teal. Like in later seasons when they're like when they're trying to like when Jack and Teal show up at Carter's house because she's like like I've been been put off like put off active duty or whatever because of some like you know Stargate related problem and they show up and and he's like Teal we brought pizza in a movie and Teal says Star Wars and Jack says he's seen it what eight nine nine times <laughs> like and Teal likes it it must be good it's like. Can you just imagine this friggin' alien who used to be like the the, the chief officer in, the, in one of their most hated enemies, like one of the most dangerous enemies, like military, like watching Star Wars and being engrossed by it. It just it, it makes you it makes you giddy as a nerd. I mean, I get it. It's kind of like his real life, but just with puppets. Um, yeah, I. If you had to be on an SG team, which one would you be on? Oh man, I would probably not be on SG one just because they're gonna get the most dangerous missions. But yep. and again, you know, as we see, the other one, the other SG teams are not really much better off, especially in the early seasons, because they basically get all of the red shirt missions, the missions where people have to die to show how big the stakes are for this particular episode. Like God, what is it? Like see episode four or five where they go to this planet where it's like the sun is so bright it, it can kill you or something, and one of the like the freaking leader of the team goes insane and like tries to starts acting like a god. His like second in command goes insane with him and becomes his like like lieutenant of the of the like militia or whatever. It's so yeah. It's there's really no safe SG team you want to be on. If anything, I'd rather be on. I'd rather be one of the SGC personnel who like gets to do write-ups on the missions, like like write <laughs> like, like maybe proofread Jack O'Neill's uh, mission briefings or something. Yeah, you know who's got a good job? It's the guy who's like Chevron One encoded, Chevron Two engaged. Walter, yeah. Walter, yeah. <laughs> He's. He's got a good job. He gets to hang out with all these really cool people, kind of be a part of a lot of really cool shit. No one's trying to kill Walter, right? Walter well, again, by a robot. maybe it might take till later seasons, but again, the thing about the SGC is there's really no safe place to be because even in the first season, now that I think about it, even in the first season, there's several instances, there's several episodes where the SGC is compromised and it's basically all hand, every every man for himself. You know, you might as, it's, it's kind of like playing Russian roulette, you know? Am I gonna be killed yeah. by the weird alien virus that turns everyone into a caveman? Am I gonna be killed by the aliens that come through the Stargate and turn everyone into copies of themselves? You know, I, it, am I gonna be taken over by the weird alien, like computer virus that gets that gets broadcast back through the mouth? You know, just sure. take your pick, Take pick your poison. <laughs> Oh man! All right. Um, yeah, we'll have to do another episode next week. Sure. Uh, let me let me go through the 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 roulette, the roulette wheel of them again. Uh, I got one in mind that I think would be good. There's a 
there's a, a, a multi not not multiverse one but an alternate timeline one that I like mm-hmm. I love the alternate timeline stuff it always sparks my imagination we might do that I'll 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 figure it out yep sure thing um, because you you already touched on the enemy within so mm-hmm. we can move past that yeah like I said I almost consider enemy within to be part of the be part of the pilot I just you really if you watch it if you watch it separate from the pilot you really won't get it and if you watch the pilot without it you don't need to see how it pays off the story of Kowalski so you kind of have to watch them together almost I I will have to watch that next I just finished Children of the Gods about 20 minutes before we hopped on <laughs> I figured you might have been doing that you know me I keep busy um, well and it, it helps to have it fresh in your mind too so it's not like a big deal yeah, if I watched it three days ago, oh, it would all be fucking gone. This seems to work the best when I watch the thing right before we hop on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if I told you, but I was taking a shower upstairs and I look behind me and then one of the tiles is slowly sliding out of the wall in my bathroom shower, right? And then I grab it, and I'm like, holy shit. And these these really old, like, thick, you know, fucking 100-year-old tiles. And what had happened was that somewhere the tile cracked, and then some moisture got in but behind it. And so that made made them so loose, right, that uh, it almost fell. And so right before dinner got here me and the wife were just upstairs just popping off tiles with just a screwdriver and a little bit of pressure from a hammer like they're they're complete tiles right the glue is just like so old it's falling off the wall with a little bit of moisture we are probably gonna walk in oh, we're gonna walk in shower oh you can tell we're fucking just just settle down married people in our 30s because fuck man a walk-in shower in the master bathroom oh oh what middle-class bliss is this? <laughs> um, but yeah, so you uh, connected with the girl. Do you want to talk about that or we can cut this out? Sure. I mean, I could probably use some advice. Uh, I mean... Okay. So... Because, you- I mean, I, I reached out to her. She got back to me and she's, we've, we've chatted a little bit and I said, I asked her the last, the, the last word yesterday was I, I asked her when, when her, like when she's planning on appearing at cons again. And she said, probably not till late April, maybe early May, because she's got stuff going on like in March and April. Um, and I said, well, hopefully I'll see you sometime. I, I look forward to hopefully seeing you sometime then like with a smiley face or something. And she, she liked that. She liked that message. And I was like, Hmm, now I feel like I've, Given I've put myself up to Pooper Creek without a paddle, because not Pooper Creek, you put yourself <laughs> out there. Well, no, what I mean is like I I, I, might, I might have shot myself in the foot because now I feel like well if I want to go like back and try and message her again I might make it awkward because I've like sort of ended the conversation now how do I start it up again? You did kind of uh, put a button on it. Yeah. Um, well, no, you that conversation. Um, I mean, it. You've already expressed interest in seeing her again, mm-hmm. so I think you know because most women they want the guy to pursue them, and that's fine. That's that's a that's where that game goes. Um, I think you put yourself out there. She knows you're interested in seeing her again. Yeah. Um, 
I think if she wants you to ask her out, she will message you and talk to you about the stuff. Hmm. Okay. Because that'll be the signal that says, hey, you should ask me out, right? But if you don't get that, I don't think she's probably interested. Yeah. Which, but I mean, I was pretty impressed by you because you just walked up to, you, you're like, hey man, there's a pretty girl at a con. We should go talk to her. She was selling uh, portraits and stuff. And you just sat there and chatted with her for like, what, 10, 15 minutes? And oh, like, I don't know. Um, yeah, no, you did really good, sir. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, plenty of other fish in that sea, you know, yeah. if anything, that's just practice for talking to pretty ladies you meet out in the wild. Um, you know, yeah. I say that like I, <laughs> I lucked into an amazing marriage. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I wasn't exactly a, a Lothario beforehand. Um, but no, so you've been sending me a lot of uh, digital artwork lately mm -hmm. that's for the Spacer Saga. The main reason I'm doing it, really, is just to teach myself skills. Um, nice. Because all the stuff that I've showed you, I basically did using skills and even in some cases assets that I got from like YouTube videos and things, um, like tutorials. And a lot of the reason why I'm teaching myself Blender especially is just so that I have that skill. But also because it's, it's, it's a rewarding way to learn the skill to make things that I can then show off and say, hey, I made this and this is from my story. So it's not like, like if, if anything, I actually was committed I won't say commission because I don't know if I'm not expecting pay necessarily, but I was kind of pseudo commissioned by some guy on another discord server to make a ship for his universe, his world building universe, um, on blender. And, um, you know, it's just like, Hey, having these skills, it makes me marketable as a science communicator, as a, like, as a content creator. And it's just fun to have these skills and be able to make stuff if I want to. I think we'll end there. All right. And so, and then uh, we'll sign off and then we'll talk for a bit, a little bit afterward. Yeah. Um, for the Blanket Fortress of Solitude, I am Derwin. And I am Nick. And I will see you next Monday morning at 0700. stranger do you like to read read what's happening am i dead i bet you like zombie books i like food do you have food you don't need food at dividedbyzerobooks.com it's full of nutrient-rich science fiction Ugh, i'm stuck in an ad aren't i once i stop talking reality will collapse until someone plays this ad again this isn't the first time we've had this discussion and it won't be the last Hello, stranger. Do you like to read?